Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 81, Biblical Figures in Islam, part 12, Old Testament wrap-up, and Job. So this is the end of the Old Testament, the final episode of the Old Testament. Congratulations. <laughs> and before proceeding, though, let me confess something here. I completely forgot someone. Just completely overlooked an Old Testament figure. Just went right past him without so much of a mention. And fittingly, that person is Job. So in addition to the plagues and disasters and all of that, add this to the list of Job's indignities. I completely overlooked him. Forgot about him completely. I was trying to do the Old Testament more or less chronologically, and that puts Job way back in the early episodes, you know, so here's what I'll do here. I will wrap up the Old Testament as promised in the title, but first, I want to go over the Islamic Job. As I'm sure most of you know, Job was that figure in the Bible who was in the middle of a bet between God and Satan. And Job was basically tortured so God could prove just how great and faithful of a man that Job was. And Job is a particularly fascinating character um, for our times, for modern times, the times that we live in, which makes it even more extraordinary that I actually overlooked him. I can't believe I did that. For one thing, Job's story is focused on the individual just like the times that we live in. It's about the person of Job. You know, it's not about a nation or a group of people. It's about one person, the individual, which is the primary unit of modern life. At least it is in my part of the world. You know, we see ourselves mainly in relationship to ourselves, our goals, our desires, our lived experience, and so on. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing. Really, most of it is a bad thing. But nonetheless, it is the world that we currently live in. And speaking of things that are bad but are simply a reality of modern life, the questioning of God has never been more popular. The arrogance of the creation toward the Creator continues with little sign of abating. And that's a theme in Job you know, the arrogance of human beings. And I mean, really be honest here. Have humans ever been more arrogant than they are right now? I mean, just in terms of pure knowledge, our species has never known more than it knows now. It has never had more data than it has now. But the criticism would be that we're pretty light on truth and heavy in knowledge, but in terms of just knowledge, real and imagined, we've never had more. And we see the growth of exceptional technology, and then we begin to think that, hey, you know what? Look at what we have, and then look what they had back then. And we start to think that we know so much more than the ancients know. Now, in a way, like I said, that's true. But in other ways, it's a mirage as well. It's a modern fantasy, a tall tale for gullible and arrogant fools. 
Yeah, I was thinking about this a while back as I was going through a museum, you know, just thinking about what do we really know in our spectacular modern times? You know, I'm going through this uh, museum. Um, shout out to the Field Museum in Chicago. They do amazing work. You know, I'm walking through this exhibit on natural history, and it was spectacular and captivating, complete with sets of dinosaur bones and what seemed like a few thousand fossils. It went from the beginning of known Earth history a few billion years ago to the present, you know, going over the major extinction events and the extinct species of ancient times, telling people what happened and our best guess as to why. And as great as that is, as impressive as it is, you know, science is a spectacular method for many things. You still can't help but wonder how much of that is really true. I mean, true with a big T as an eternally true. What will future scientists think of the scientist who created this exhibit that I found to be so interesting and informative and fascinating? You know, how much will still be true, even scientifically speaking, 20 years from now? or a hundred years from now. Educated guesses are still guesses. Just like we still don't know where the universe ends, or if it ends, or when it started, or how it started. You know, the Big Bang Theory, in all likelihood, will probably not survive the rest of this century. You know, what do we really know as far as truth knows? Do we actually know more than the ancients did. You know, just think about the lack of certainty in our present time. You know, even with our best methods of observing the universe, just the uncertainty of that, even now, you know, with all the thousands and thousands of years of knowledge piling on top of each other. And for me, that sort of thing makes you think about Job. You know, Job, who, like us in modern times, with his incomplete knowledge, his finite time frame, his mortal limitations, and yet <laughs> he is still questioning God about how God is running the universe, just like we do, questioning God on his creation. You know, in the Bible, God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Very true. <laughs> and yet Job persists. Just like we persist. We want to know God's role in the suffering of individuals. Why do bad things happen to good people? What is the role of God in mankind's struggle? And so on. You know, and then there's the long laments of Job, poetic at the time, but in modern days, Job would probably be treated with psychoactive drugs. You know, it's not always a chemical thing. Sometimes it's a spiritual thing, or <laughs> sometimes it's just premature enlightenment. You know, someone who is staring at reality a bit too closely, and maybe they're just not ready to know what they're being told. 
you know, kind of like an infant chugging whiskey. The, the system just can't handle it. And the point is, when you go over Job for all these many reasons, it, it's very stunning how relevant this all is to, my, to modern life. It's scarily so. And that's just as true whether you're talking about the biblical Job or the Quranic Job. I promise I'm getting to this. Probably too long a preamble here, but I guess I just wanted to say that, you know, these things, they make Job more relevant than ever. This is almost, it's a long-winded apology to Job for overlooking him because this is not a person or a story who should be overlooked. Again, be it the biblical version or the Quranic version. And really, in this case, with this person, the Islamic version isn't that much different from the biblical version. Job goes through all these trials after Satan tells God that Job only loves him because of the great things he has given to Job. So then a bunch of horrible things happen. Job shows extraordinary patience. And in the end, God makes Job greater than ever and gives him more than ever. Now, as you would expect, the Quran doesn't have any long diatribes from Job. There aren't any long laments in the Quran. He's just held up as a godly man who had patience as a major, major virtue of his. The Quranic Job was basically a guy with problems, and he prayed to God, and eventually those problems were solved. And this is from Surah 21, verses 83 to 84. And remember when Job cried out to his Lord, I have been touched with adversity, and you were the most merciful of the merciful. So we answered his prayer and removed his adversity and gave him back his family, twice as many, as a mercy from us and a lesson for the devoted worshipers. So there's nothing terribly unusual there. You know, the fascinating complexity of the biblical narrative, uh, you know, in this part of the Quran, it's basically reduced to a sentence or two about the virtue of Job. Now, that doesn't mean the Quran is defying the biblical narrative. You know, it's just referencing the biblical story to make a point, as it always does. The whole story of Job, it's assumed that everyone knows it. There are many instances like this, you know, where the Quran is not just going to repeat the entire story. You know, it would almost be a waste of space. And, you know, I mean, theoretically, every word that's coming through is a tax on Muhammad. So you probably want to be economical with it. You know, you can think of it almost as a footnote that could easily read, see passage XYZ in the Bible. Here's another Quranic reference to Job. This is Surah 38, verses 41 to 44. And remember our servant Job, when he cried out to his Lord, Satan has afflicted me with distress and suffering. We responded, stomp your foot. Now here is a cool and refreshing spring for washing and drinking. And we gave him back his family, twice as many as a mercy from us and a lesson for people of reason. And we said to him, Take in your hand a bundle of grass, and strike your wife with it, and do not break your oath. We truly found him patient. What an excellent servant he was, 
Indeed, he constantly turned to Allah. Now that last part, that's very interesting. Let me repeat that last line. And we said to him, take in your hand a bundle of grass and strike your wife with it. Do not break your oath. We truly found him patient. What an excellent servant he was. Indeed, he constantly turned to Allah. So what's going on with the grass? You know, this is where it certainly diverts a bit from the biblical story. Why is it that Job needs to hit his wife with a bundle of grass? Well, the Quran there is actually referencing a detail of the Job story that we could only guess was common in the area, you know, I don't recall seeing it in the biblical story, but it must have been known to people. So as the Muslim story goes, at one point, Job's wife becomes so upset at all that they have lost and all that's going on. And she demands he asks God to remove all of this suffering. Now, apparently at this point, Job was embarrassed to call on God to remove the hardship. For whatever reason, I don't fully understand it, but... He was embarrassed to say, hey, God, please remove this. But eventually, he begs for mercy and God answers. But before that happens, <laughs> before this all ends, Job becomes so enraged with his wife that he promises her 100 lashes. I'm assuming with a whip. You know, this is how you resolved irreconcilable differences back in the day. So as the story goes on, of course, Job loves his wife, and he didn't really want to do this. You know, he said it in a rage and under some understandably difficult circumstances. But he doesn't want to break his oath either. So in this case, God offers him a solution. Just take some grass and hit her with it. Those are technically lashes, even if she doesn't feel anything. It's pretty clever, actually. Now, my best guess is that this story maybe evolved from the early part of the biblical story where Job's wife actually tells him that he should curse God and die. Or it may have been a local version. You know, as always, the Quran is pretty light on details. You know, it's, it's always referencing Job. It's not telling the story of Job. The Quran doesn't even acknowledge Satan's involvement in the whole story. Now, again, not that it refutes it. It's just not telling the whole story. It seldom does. So, you know, maybe Job is not the most interesting biblical figure as far as, you know, his Islamic parallels here. Um, but in finishing, I think I can give you an interesting story about Job from the Hadith traditions that you might like. This is from the Sahih Bukhari collection. Uh, I believe number 3391. The prophet said, while Job was naked, taking a bath, a swarm of gold locusts fell on him, and he started collecting them in his garment. His Lord called him, O oh Job, have I not made you rich enough to need what you see? You know, or not need what you see? You know, and Job said, Yes, O Lord, 
but I cannot dispense with your blessing. So Job has plenty, but he's not going to say no to having a little more. So what is the lesson here? I can't tell you for sure. You know, I suppose maybe it's teaching you to use all that God gives you and not to waste it. But it also comes off as a kind of a religious joke, like religious humor almost, a, a classic non sequitur of comedy with Job delivering the punchline, as in you're expecting it to be a lesson on greed, but then Job turns it around on God and says basically, well, it would be blasphemy to waste anything that you're giving me, so I'm going to take your golden locusts and add them to my already large pile of wealth. <laughs> Well, I'm not drawing any large lessons from that. This could mean a zillion different things. You know, there there's so many hadiths. It's very hard to find a commentary on all of them. You know, I just thought it was an interesting story. It's certainly more unique than the Quran's mentions of Job. But I suppose that's fitting, you know, with how we're ending the Old Testament here. Job is just another in a long line of Old Testament figures who more often than not, find their Quranic versions to be simplified and sanitized compared to the biblical accounts. Just remember the stories we have heard and how the Islamic version changed, starting with Adam. You know, there's no fall. There's no real allegory about the nature of human beings, really. It's just setting up a dynamic of good versus evil for the world to come. You know, uh, the dynamic of Satan versus Adam and, and Adam's descendants. Now, the Quranic story is complex and poetic, but the focus of that complexity is not Adam. It's Satan and the angels and the world. It's the nature of evil. It's about how the devil became evil jealousy at the undeserved status of humans and an unwillingness to submit to God. And, you know, the creation of the dynamic in which Islamic theology operates, you know, the focus is not on a mistake that Adam made, you know, like it would be in the Bible, but rather as a righteous creation of God who was put in charge of the earth. I mean, really, you can barely even call Adam the main character of the Quranic story. He doesn't really move the events. The events move around him. And then there's Noah. You know, Noah was simply a righteous man, even if all his family members were not. And certainly the world was not. Abraham was, in essence, also a righteous man. None of the iffy parts about being so afraid of the king that he calls Sarah his sister, you know, and Abraham certainly looks better with the whole Hagar and Ishmael situation in the Islamic version as well. And Joseph, Joseph got his own surah, and he's pretty much entirely righteous in both the biblical and the Quranic tellings, but even the Quranic version manages to improve it. Um, improve his image, so to speak. You know, he comes off a tad better, a tad more righteous. And 
even more sensitive to Benjamin's feeling in the telling of, you know, the end game when all, all of his brothers are there. Now Moses might be an exception to this pattern, particularly given the Al Khadr story where he does look pretty dumb, <laughs> but the pattern continues with David and his son Solomon. You know, by the way, I, I should say, you know, don't view Moses just from the Al Khadr story. He he has he has his moments in the Quran. It's not just that. And as I said, when you know, when I went over the Al Khadr story, you know, the character of Moses is pretty incidental. It really could have been anybody. Anyway, you know, but the pattern of making prophets look better, it continues with David and his son Solomon. Now, David is a righteous man, you know, not an imperfect man who made one giant mistake with adultery and murder. He was a righteous man in the Quranic telling. And his son was even greater, epically so. Solomon died a righteous man commanding an army of enslaved jinn, you know, not as a fallen tragic figure who went a little nuts with the foreign stuff. And like Moses, you know, Jonah too is less than perfect, but again, that's more exception than the rule. And Jonah doesn't really come off worse than the biblical version. Actually, I, I'd have a hard time thinking of one prophet who comes off worse in the Quran than in the Bible. Now, generally, you have the biblical characters who appear more human and more relatable because of the mistakes that they make. Their righteousness comes not solely from their actions. It comes from God. And even the greatest of the Old Testament prophets is prone to sin. And it's not hard to see where the Christian view of humanity comes from here. If even Moses was a sinner, what does that say about us, about the common man, the common person? <laughs> you know, even the very first person in paradise with only a single stupid temptation, he failed the test. So what does humanity need? Given that, humanity needs a redeemer, one who is perfect, and not a mere prophet, a divine figure born of a virgin, the son of God, you know, he could live a blameless life as a human because he wasn't, you know, a human. <laughs> I don't want to blaspheme here. He is, okay, but God and human, but he wasn't a human. Like I'm a human, you know, yeah, he was human and is human, but also God and, and all that. Let's not <laughs> get into uh, Christology here. You know, that you know, this this was the start of the mysterious trinity. You know, the point being the only way to be a perfect human is to not be a human or to be more than a human, however you want to put this. You know, in other words, it's not something that a human can just decide to do. Say, hey, wake up saying, you know what? I'm feeling great. I think I'm going to be righteous. Humans can't do that. No one can do that any more than a gerbil can turn itself into a bird. But in the Islamic version of these Old Testament stories, is such a righteous, you know, almost divine figure is unlikely to emerge because he isn't needed. Because most of the Old Testament prophets are righteous in the Quranic telling. And they're humans. And nothing but humans who just listened to God. 
You know, that is something anybody can do. The ultimate figure in a world like this would not be some divine redeemer. You know, in the Islamic world, the ultimate figure would be a communicator, the ultimate instructor, one who will inscribe the guidance of God permanently in a clear and authoritative message. And in an ironic twist, that person would be Muhammad, an illiterate. So that contrast, just really keep that in mind as we move into the New Testament, which will be almost entirely about Jesus, obviously. But as we explore the Islamic Jesus, think about where that came from. The Christian Jesus was built on the Old Testament. That's why it's there. It's the Old Testament, not the irrelevant Testament, not the obsolete Testament. It sets up the person of Jesus, who would be the central character of the new Christian church. And if the Old Testament was read as the Islamic version, Jesus would be very, very different. <laughs> he would look like, well, the Islamic Jesus, a messenger rather than a savior, a perfect and righteous man, obviously, but in Islam, not that different than the previous prophets. I mean, he was virgin birth and all, but, you know, not terribly different, not hugely different. And we will get to that. So goodbye to the Old Testament, but don't forget these themes and these people as we talk about the New Testament and about Jesus and these things come back in the new chapters in, in subtle and not so subtle ways, you know, in different forms, whether it be the biblical version or the Islamic version. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.